Well, good morning. And to welcome you as we have gathered together to worship our Lord Jesus Christ, whether you have gathered here in the sanctuary or you are in your own homes and you are joining us uh, through the Internet, we're pleased to have everyone here. Just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, One is our youth group is starting back up next Sunday night. Uh, So uh, if you want to get that word out or just it's just encouraging to know uh, that our youth are still around and uh, be meeting again. Uh, this coming week is the uh, next Sheds of Hope build. If you are interested, you want to know more uh, about that, you'll see information there in your bulletin. But uh, you just grab uh, one of those deacons out there, or uh, you can grab uh, Russell Puppy sitting here. Wave your hand, Russell Puppy, or I see Ken Johnson. You just speak to them. Whether you're a man or a woman, they'd love to have you come out and uh, join them for that. Now let's prepare our hearts for worship. The prelude uh, reminds me, just to let you know, September the 24th, that's the next sing-along with Amy. So put that on your calendar, September the 24th. 
For a call to worship, I want to read uh, from Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We come before you now, our God, because our soul thirsts for you. And we pray that in our worship that we lift before you for your Holy Spirit to, uh, to come down to be upon us and to, as we seek to honor you with our praise, to, that you would give us our fill, that you would give us uh, that water that we may drink of you and feed upon you uh, through the, the preaching, through the sacrament, through the worship. We look to you to be upon us now as we come to worship you through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, stand and sing together as the deer. For a confession of faith, we'll be answering the questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life, and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. 
Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let us pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, Father, we give you praise that you are the one who dwells in heaven, that you are the God who is above the earth. Earth is your creation. You are the creator. We thank you that you are not bound to this earth. We thank you that there was nothing before you. There is no previous source that has created you. There's been no time that you have developed into the God that you are. You have always been the same uh, today, yesterday, as you will be forever. You are the Ancient of Days, and we praise you and worship you. We pray for your kingdom to come. We pray for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And pray that should he return now, that we will be found faithful in our service to your kingdom. For when you call us to you, that you will be able to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that we will do your will. We will do your will gladly uh, as the angels do your will. And we pray that whatever is your will for us, whatever takes place in our lives and around us, that we will accept it as your will and gladly serve you in those circumstances. We pray, our Father, that you give to us this day our daily bread. Pray that you will feed us with, the, uh, with your word, that you will feed us with your sacrament. We pray for the daily cares that we need for food, for our health. We pray for your provisions, for healing. And give us that strength each day. We pray for our country and your mercies and blessings upon this land. We lift before you the state of California as it continues to be ravaged by wildfires. We pray for California and as these fires have spread into Oregon. We pray particularly for those who are on the front line fighting these fires for your protection of them. Give them that strength, that wisdom that they need for their effectiveness. Pray for an end to these fires soon. We pray, our Father, that you would forgive our debts, our sins, as we forgive our debtors, those who have offended us. Give us that same heart that you have, a heart of mercy. Give us that same will to pay the cost. What is necessary to provide forgiveness? We pray that we not be led into temptation, but all the more that you would deliver us from the evil one who continues to tempt us with the intent to lead us astray, uh, protect us from the temptations of this world, give us strength in the weakness of our flesh that so easily gives way to temptation. We pray this acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom the power and the glory forever, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me now in uh, your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. You'll also find the passage uh, as well in, uh, in an insert uh, in the bulletin. Well, a question for you. What is reality? Now, I'm not referring to fake news. I'm referring to the implications of quantum physics. Are you impressed that I would even think of questions from quantum physics? Well, that's just because I've looked at things that have told me that quantum physics raises that kind of question. And then I watch something like, like the movie The Matrix. I don't know if you watched the movie The Matrix, but it's a, it depicts a world that is controlled by machines, and the human beings are we're, we're battery sources for the machines, and we don't know it because the 
machines have created for us a simulated world with simulated lives that we think is real, but it's not real at all. So are we real or are we simulated? You know, I have read a little bit and and I went on YouTube and started to watch videos about the philosophy of this kind of stuff. But my head just hurts after a while and I just can't go too far into it. My concern is how we humans have tended to regard the true events in Scripture as nothing more than a simulated reality. And you'll see what I mean as we go further into our text. So look with me in verses 1 through 3. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now I like it when a writer states clearly the point of what has been a long, complex argument. And he says that the reason for this long exposition, which was chapter 7 about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, say, look, the whole point of this is for you to know you have that high priest. He is Jesus Christ. He is our man in heaven representing our interests. Now, in chapter 9, he's going to develop more fully the the terms and the ideas that he just introduces here in these couple of verses. The, The high priest, the tent. The tent was the tabernacle in the wilderness. The sacrifices that were made. Let me just stop for a moment and interpret quickly what these terms are, what he means by them. The high priest was the chief priest. He was the priest, the only one who could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement up and into the Holy of Holies and there make a sacrifice for the whole nation, for all the people. Well, Jesus is that high priest in the real tabernacle in heaven. He goes on to note of Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And this phrase here indicates two important things about Jesus. One, he has completed his work of making sacrifices. That's the point of saying that he is seated. The earthly priests never did sit in the temple. There were no chairs for them to sit on. Because in the temple, they were continually busy offering up sacrifices. Now, the second thing that Christ's title here points to, or or this phrase points to, is Christ's title as a king. He sits where? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty. And our author here is signifying Jesus, uh, his equality with God. He's already has done this before. That's how he opened up the ladder. He had presented the son. This is in the first three verses of the, of the ladder. He presents the son as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then he adds, after making purification for sins, after making that sacrifice, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is equal there with God. And then there is the phrase here. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Holy places, tent, meaning the same thing. Tent, again, is that tabernacle in the wilderness that is later superseded by the temple in Jerusalem, saying that Jesus is a, is a minister, just like those priests were ministering in that temple. 
Christ is a minister in the heavenly sanctuary, the true sanctuary that the Lord has set up. God has set up, not man. Now let's continue in the other two verses, four and five. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now let's understand here what our author is, the main point he wants to make here. He's saying that the the tabernacle of the wilderness and the system of priests making sacrifices in that tabernacle, those are just copies. Indeed, they are shadows of the reality that is in heaven. They are imitations of the true temple and the worship that is offered in heaven. They are, you might say, the blueprint and that, or that the blueprint for the tabernacle that was given by God to Moses, that they, that blueprint was based on a very real sanctuary that is in heaven. And the priests play out a role that the true priest, Jesus Christ, would carry out in that real sanctuary. All right. What's the point of Again, these kind of complex, hard concepts to understand. Well, I think what the primary point he wants to convey is this. When you look back at those physical, tangible elements of the Jewish religion, understand that they correspond with very real elements in heaven. There is a temple in heaven. And in that temple is the very real Holy of Holies, which is the throne room of God. Think to the book of Revelation. Remember in chapter 4, the Apostle John, he's taken up to a throne room, and he sees there a throne with one seated on that throne. There's something that he sees with his eyes. It's a reality. Now, we know that God is spirit. We know that God is omnipresent. That is, that God is everywhere. Nevertheless, we are made to understand that in one sense, that there is a place in which his presence dwells. And the the earthly tabernacle, now the earthly temple, conveyed this idea of God's presence inhabiting a holy place. When Solomon built the first temple and he dedicated the temple, he said this to God. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And then he added this. This house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. That's a way of saying, my presence shall be there. And so the temple, the tabernacle before that, depicted the very real temple that is in heaven, where God's presence dwells. Our Father, who art in heaven. The temple does not depict an abstract idea. It does not depict how, well, God's presence is everywhere, and so every place ought to be considered a temple of God. The whole earth is God's temple. Now, there's there's some truth to this idea. We're told in a couple of places in the New Testament that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that together we make up the temple of God. But that's not what our passage is teaching here. His point here is that the physical reality, and his readers knew of the temple there in Jerusalem, 
Saying that physical temple, it corresponds to the real, the reality of a heavenly temple, a heavenly dwelling. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not speaking of a physical heavenly temple in the sense of that it's being made by bricks and and stones and, and wood. I don't know what the materials that would be used of heaven. But the temple, again, is real. What can be outside of that temple and enter into it? Now, this is important to grasp because what it does is it keeps us from turning spiritual realities into kind of abstract concepts that, you know, some kind of ideas, and ultimately it's reduced to nothing. See, this is what the world does with biblical truth. It takes real events, and then it turns them, real Bible events, and it turns them into mythological stories. And we're supposed to uh, learn some nice ideas from these stories. So when the Bible speaks of heaven, well, it's speaking of man's yearning for a place of peace, of something beyond himself. When we read of Jesus' resurrection, that's just a a story that symbolizes uh, the hope of rebirth that comes around every spring. Or you look at Jesus' death on the cross. Well, it symbolizes, if you want to believe in God, God's love for you. It symbolizes sacrificial love. We ought to show one another. And that's all it does. Let me give you a a recent example for me. Just this week, a a friend had uh, forwarded to me a blog posting. And um, apparently, the psychologist, you might know the name Abraham Maslow, when he had the Maslow Pyramid and so on, of human needs. Well, he also developed something called the Jonah Syndrome, based on the story of Jonah. He says, you look at the story of Jonah, and that's a story that teaches us about the fear of success, the fear of attaining one's destiny. And so the blog writer, he he took Jonah's story, and he took what uh, Maslow had to say, and he used that to talk about Uh, our fear of grandiosity. And he writes this. The ancient myths, and he certainly would have included Jonah in the ancient myths, have consistently forewarned us of the greatest danger. And that is the betrayal of self by failing to live up to one's potential. Well, I wrote back to my friend and I said, you know, actually, Jonah says what it, why he was fleeing from God. It didn't have anything about fear of reaching his potential or grandiosity. He, he says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And Jonah did not want mercy uh, being shown Uh, to his enemies. That's why he fled. Now, look, ancient myths, they do have much to teach us about ourselves. They are good to read and you can learn a lot from them. But the events of the Bible, they took place and they were recorded to teach us truths, not merely ideas about ourselves. We can learn some things like that. But they were recorded to convey realities, what took place. Look, if you want to go back to Jonah and you want to talk about what are some ideas we can learn um, about uh, man's problem, well, yeah, you can go back there and learn that, well, what our biggest problem is not fear to living up to our potential, but that we rebel against God. We don't want to do his will. So Jonah can be used to depict that kind of rebellion. But Jesus turned to Jonah and saw him as a figure type for himself, for our Redeemer. That when you look at Jonah's time in the fish, that it foreshadows the very real death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then those events of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection, what do they represent? Nothing. 
Nothing. They are historic events that had to take place for the redemption of us rebels. Now, our author wants us to understand the reality of another event. And he he will spend even more time on this. And that is Jesus' ascension into heaven. In heaven, Jesus entered the temple into the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies. And we're going to learn in the next chapter about the offering that he presents to God. The main point here is that he sat down on the right hand of God, that he had completed that work. Our author wants us to understand those acts have happened. They do not represent the idea of forgiveness or the idea of sacrifice. Think of it this way. We can look back, we can read about D-Day, and we can learn some moral lessons from that. But D-Day is not a story made up to teach us about ideas. It is an historic event that was crucial to victory for the Allies. Well, these events of Jesus are real, and they are crucial for our salvation. Now, here's the point of all of this stuff long-winded argument that's being said here. If the events of the redemptive story are real, and let me just, just rehearse very briefly what the redemption story is. This is the, the, the story of the Bible. Uh, Adam and Eve are created. They fall due to their sin. There is the coming of Jesus, God's Son, by the incarnation. His salvation His sacrificial death on the cross is there. His burial in a tomb. His bodily resurrection. And his ascension into heaven. And then into the throne room of God. If these events are real, then we can know that our redemption is real. We who were separated from God, we were under his wrath. We have been reconciled to him through this real work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the real thing. His work is the real thing. Our redemption is the real thing. And because of these real events and these real results, we can know this, that after our death, we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ. We can know that someday... Jesus will return to this earth. We can know and we can place our hope in the resurrection of our bodies when he returns. And we can know that this this earth will be restored. That we will dwell on this restored earth in the presence of God. These are real events that because the other events took place, these events will take place as well. They're not representing ideas and and just dreams of mankind. They are real. Now, central to these events in which Jesus takes part is his incarnation. Now, an incarnation has been a hard thing to understand from the very beginning. There were debates in the early church. It wasn't until the the Council of Nicene that finally it was settled, kind of once and for all, for the church. But here were the questions. Was the incarnation, to use our our modern language, a simulation? Was Jesus, was he God, he's divine, and he only appeared as a man? His flesh was not real flesh, it was just kind of like clothing that he wore it was not really part of his nature his flesh was a simulation or was Jesus a man in whom the spirit of God came down and inhabited he's nothing more than a man that's his full nature and God's spirit came upon him or another way of thinking of this was Jesus no more than a mere man, perhaps perhaps an extraordinary man, but nothing but a man, nevertheless, whom his followers, they kind of raised him and, and promoted him to this status of being divine. 
So that Jesus was but a, a simulation of what a, well, what a truly godlike person ought to be. He's our example in those, those miracles and, and stories we read about. They're only symbolic of moral and spiritual lessons. Well, fortunately for you, we don't have time to explore each of these arguments. But we can note this. The New Testament writers, without a doubt, present Jesus as the unique God-man. Now, one might argue that they were lying. One might argue that they, well, expected their readers to want to understand that their stories, their teachings about Jesus were, well, were just symbols, that they were to be thought of as simulating other higher truths. But what cannot be questioned is that the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament writings, they are uniform in presenting Jesus as God who became man. Jesus bore our flesh fully. Jesus retained his divinity fully. Now we might ask again, well, this is fine, but really, what interest is of all this? Why make such a big deal about it? Well, it is this. We're to understand that Jesus' incarnation is permanent. He came to earth. He took on flesh. That was the incarnation. He lived in, on earth in the flesh. He died. He rose in the flesh. He ascended back into heaven in the flesh. In the flesh, as our high priest, he entered into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, and he sat down at God's right hand. This is reality. It's not a symbolic depiction of some spiritual truth. It is an event that has completed our redemption. Now, this is the supreme example of where reality is more fantastic than fiction. You know, it amazes me. There there are doubters, many of whom are in pulpits, preaching behind pulpits. And they they want to take these events and they want to they want to spiritualize it. They want to look for a well there's a truth that is above them that maybe all religions can participate in and and we can see behind. Well these very real events soar far above whatever imaginations uh, these doubters think that they can come up with. You know, and the real thing gets more wondrous. I mean, let's ask this. Well, why is it significant that Jesus, God the Son, returned to heaven in the flesh? I mean, what does it matter? What if he had just shed that flesh, retained fully, just, well, he always had to fully divine nature, but he got rid of the human nature. Well, you've got to think back again. Go back to the fall, way back then. Adam's sin brought what? Death to human flesh. It turned human flesh into a disease covering. We can all testify to that, can't we? Our own illness, our frailty, testify to the defect of the flesh. It's led some religions, I guess really most religions, to regard the flesh as, as kind of just a cage that we have to escape, as a deformity of itself, and they look to death as a release to a spiritual state that frees them from the flesh forever. They want to get rid of that flesh, and their soul just lives on. But that's not the Christian hope. The Christian looks not to the day to be freed of the flesh, but to the day that the flesh will be resurrected and will be made new. Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15. And he uses the term, he, he's, he speaks of the natural body that we have and then being raised to a spiritual body. But what he means by that is not uh, just this kind of vague spiritual thing, but he's talking about a physical, our incarnated, our physical bodies being made fitted to be in heaven 
to live in a heavenly glory. That's what Jesus' resurrection causes us to to have hope for. He rose from the dead. He rose in his body, but it was a transformed body. He walked about. He ate food. He was recognized by his disciples, but it was changed. It was no longer bound to the natural limits of the body. It was not subjected to disease or death. And no doubt, once he returned permanently to heaven, the change was even more transformed to glory. So enough that when John sees him and records about it in Revelation, he is overwhelmed with the brightness of Christ's image. Well, here's the amazing, the amazing truth. We have the same destiny in Jesus. His resurrection is the first fruits for our resurrection to come. We, too, shall appear one day before God in his throne room in glorious bodies. Philippians 3. 20 to 21 tells us, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. To catch that, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Jesus took on our flesh. He became like us that we might become like him. And we are not to become God, but we are to be united to God through Jesus Christ, who is our head. There's just so much more to explore this, of this glory. But for now, know this that the very real events that have taken place upon this earth have led to the very real events in heaven that have already occurred now for our salvation and will lead to the very real events still to come for our glory. And if you have not joined in this fantastic journey, know that it is not too late. Do not be content with simulations of what might be some kind of nice idea. Do not look for higher ideas. Believe. Hold fast to what Jesus has done. He is, after all, the real thing. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the reality of his work for us. May we hold on to this as we look with our own hope Uh, to the realities that we shall someday behold in heaven, the realities we shall someday behold on this restored earth when we are in your presence with our glorious bodies. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you get your cups prepared for our communion? And let me read the institution of the Lord's Supper as it comes to us from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here we have the sacrament that was given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ to depict for us the realities that he has accomplished for us and what is still to take place. That we are to remember the, the body, the blood, the body broken, the blood shed for us that accomplish truly our redemption. 
that we are to know that someday that we are to gather at the great banquet of the Lord and together feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus' body remains in heaven. It is not coming down here. When I pray, I'm not going to transform this bread into the body, the physical body of Jesus Christ. It's not going to come down and somehow be under it and over it and and in it somehow. That body remains in heaven because he is there as a high priest. He is interceding for us. But the Holy Spirit is here whom he has sent us. The Spirit is with God. The Spirit is God as well. And that Spirit is uniting us with our Lord Jesus Christ as we partake of this bread and partake of the cup, that we are in some way feeding upon that body that is there in heaven, being united together by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this reality of Jesus' redemption, of his work, the reality that is made clear to us even now as we look with hope of the day that will come when we will be with him. In Christ's name, amen. Now let me do add that for anyone who does not hold to these realities, then the sacrament is not for you. This is about what is, what is real. But know that we, and we, I ask that you not partake, or if there's anyone here who is harboring division, uh, enmity against a brother or sister in Christ, This sacrament speaks to us of the unity we have in Jesus Christ. We are members of one body, and he is our head. Now, it is for all, though. You have sinned. Perhaps you struggle with some feelings with brothers and sisters. That's fine. You're not to harbor on to them. But know that Jesus calls us in our weakness to come and take part of him. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take heed, this is my body given for you. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all ye of it. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. We give you praise for his incarnation by which he took upon himself our very flesh, and in that flesh made atonement for our sins upon the cross. We give you praise that though he died and was buried, yet he rose again in the flesh. And in his resurrection we look to our own to come. We give you praise for his ascension on high in that flesh, where he has entered into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, your throne room, and sits at your right hand. And we look to the day that he shall return again in that flesh in all of his glory. We say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together when I survey the wondrous cross.
The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.